He recognized you. That that must have made your week. Bro, uh, top five highlight <laughs> of my life. I, almost as good as when the guy thought I was Chris Chelios at the airport, <laughs> which is a story for another time. Worth is a powerful drama that engages with profound philosophical ideas while being rooted in recognizably human emotions. That's Robert Levin of Newsday. His thoughts on Worth. New film, the featured review here on Cinephile. Something new, something old, and a wild card. So the new film is Worth, currently on Netflix, starring Michael Keaton and Stanley Tucci. The old is Out of Africa, inspired by Claire Atkins, recent guest who went to Africa. I finally watched Out of Africa, also inspired by Dan Stanzik, who had said that I think there's only two films that he hasn't seen that one best picture in his lifetime. Well, I was seven when Out of Africa came out, one best picture. Hadn't seen it yet? Knocked that out. Also, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, because Cody and I were talking about great August comedies, and I was discussing it on Calgary Radio, and they said, hey, don't forget, 40-Year-Old Virgin, also a great August comedy. All right, fine. Let's sneak that in there as well. And the wild card, that's right, Ryan Rossillo. Yes. Podcaster, sportscaster, and also, continuing the theme of writers here, six authors in three months, Rossillo, also a writer, left ESPN to go be a screenwriter in Hollywood. We'll get an update from how the screenwriter is going. Living in LA, living the good life. You're aware that he's a writer, right, Cody? I had no clue he left ESPN to, to pursue film writing. Like, that's awesome. Like I, yeah. like, I secretly have a goal someday of writing a script. I've always been intrigued by writing scripts, so I'm always yeah. trying to think of movie ideas. I, I love the idea of Ryan Rossillo trying to pivot and become a film writer. Yeah, so we'll talk to him about that journey. Also, the real reason I want to talk to him, I texted him, uh, Fargo is one of our favorite movies. He and I both love it. And this is the 25th anniversary of this year of Fargo. It came out in March. What the hell? We're in September, but it's, you know, 25 and a half years. Came out in 96. We're now in 2021, so it'll work for our purposes. Rosella's still jacked, right? I assume he's still jacked. Still enormous, yeah. Okay. You'll see him uh, shortly via yeah. Zoom, at least, for your purposes. Yeah. You'll see he's still enormous. Fits in well there, I think, in Los Angeles. Um, <laughs> Another thing, too, I, I blasted Cody before about the fact he's not nearly as responsive as Dan Stanzik on email. He's not the cinephile that Joe Engelbrecht is, like Joe loves you know, early De Palma, Miyazaki. Mm -hmm. But one thing I'd say, Chris Cody has an A+. He's better than anyone I've worked with, podcast titles. <laughs> like, if you just, if you saw the title last week, Working Blue with Adnan, uh, I fell off my chair. I was laughing yes. so hard. I said, that that is how you sell this episode. And then my brother even texted and goes, what does that mean? Ah. So I... That is I, great. I, I love that. I googled working blue meaning, which says working blue refers to the act of using swear words and discussing things that people do not discuss in polite society. <laughs> a blue comedian or blue comic is a comedian who usually performs risque routines layered with curse words. Some comedians build their careers on blue comedy. Look, we're both wearing blue right now. I just feel like that that needed to be said. I don't know. Like no one can see us. This is a podcast, but we're both wearing blue. I think what makes it so funny, why I enjoyed it so much, is the reference you use. Like you could have said, "Oh, uh, you're a little, a little more vulgar than I would have thought." Yeah, no. like, okay, but working blue. It's like just, that's like Lenny. I just picture Lenny Bruce. And like, <laughs> uh, how is he? He works blue. Okay, well, be careful, with Lenny Bruce. Here. It's all about clickbait. That's what we're doing around here. It was a fantastic heading. All right, uh, let's get into Worth. Oh, first of all, actually, you're back from Disney. How was the trip? Uh, this was a little family vacation. I How was literally got back an hour ago. My feet are exhausted. I went to parks four days in a row. I mean, Disney's great. It's exhausting, though. It's one of those things that when you're arriving there, you're like, this is the best place on Earth. And on the last day, you're like, I don't ever want to come back to this place ever again. It's, it's an amazing like juxtaposition that it creates over a four-day period. Yeah, what you've seen with having a child is that whenever you're taking a family vacation, it's exhausting because you're just running around. There's no true vacation. There's no, no real rest. Unless, I guess, you went all-inclusive to a beach or something, mm. then you're kind of sitting there watching her. But Disney, like, that's a lot of foot traffic. Oh, 
God, it's, it was too much foot traffic, honestly. Like, just walking from my hotel room to the buses. I mean, yeah. Christ, Disney. Anyways, it was but, great, though. But my in kid a nod it. to Ron Miguel, there was a lot of animals near you. Right? Oh, yes. We stayed, we stayed at the Animal Lodge, Animal Kingdom Lodge that had a savanna view. So, literally, on our back balcony, I was just staring at giraffes and zebras and uh, this cattle. It looked like a bull, but it's something cattle. Whatever. It was amazing. I, it's it's a, a, a hefty penny. I don't even know if that's a phrase for expensive, but it was... It was worth it. It was really cool. Yeah, a hefty tab overall, but you're right. It's definitely expensive. But listen, a bull, it makes me think of uh, Kingpin. Uh, we don't mm-hmm. have any sheep. We don't have any cows. <laughs> we do have a bull, though. Yeah. Like, oh, just disgusting scene. Yeah. Speaking of great comedies, go check out Kingpin. Yes. All right, let's launch into Worth. On a somber note, uh, Chris and I are recording this September 7th. We all know that 9-11 is currently approaching, one of the most horrific days ever in American history. Uh, and so there's a lot of reflection, particularly this year. It is the 20th anniversary. And... What I've realized is that there's a lot of people who I think are their heart in the right place, meaning they're looking back at this experience and, you know, just how cataclysmic it was, how it changed their lives. Some of it may be a little bit exploitive, but I do think there's, there's something helpful in terms of being reflective and looking back. So there's been other films about 9-11. United 93 is a great film. Uh, particularly the last 10 minutes are amazing where they storm the cockpit. That's from a director named Paul Greengrass. You know he's worked in the Bourne movies. Um, Oliver Stone did a movie, World Trade Center, which was actually disappointing. You'd think Oliver Stone, wow, Nicolas Cage. But the f- result felt kind of muted, kind of lapsed. So you have this film now called Worth. So again, this uses 9-11 as the backdrop. An attorney in Washington, D.C. battles against cynicism, bureaucracy, and politics to help the victims of 9-11. It's from director Sarah Colangelo and writer Max Bornstein. I'm not familiar with either of their work, but I'm familiar with the star of the film, and that is Michael Keaton. Who doesn't love Michael Keaton? One of the great actors, of course, the last 30 plus years. And he plays the lawyer. You also get Stanley Tucci in the movie, who I love. Tucci wearing a hairpiece, which does make you realize how much different he would look if he did have hair. (laughs) Tucci, by the way, I just saw the story. He announced yesterday he had cancer three years ago. Didn't tell anybody. Found cancer on the tip of his tongue. Had a feeding tube for six months. Unbelievable. He was able to keep that under wraps. Thank God Stanley Tucci's okay. You've also got Amy Ryan, of course, a great New York theater actor, and other actors as well. But let's uh, first a thought here on Michael Keaton, because I don't think Chris does not know my Michael Keaton story. <laughs> I'm covering the Academy Awards with my man Ben Lyons. He hooks us up with a Jimmy Kimmel after party. This is a story where I told you I ran past Ray Romano, then ran yeah. back again. Is this Michael in. Keaton hooked you up with the after party or Ben Lyons? No, no, Ben Lyons okay. did, yeah. But as we're standing in line to get some French fries, my wife Damon and I, you need French I see fries. it's Michael Keaton. Yeah. I go, oh my God, I've got to think of something to say to Michael Keaton. Like, what can I, you know? And all that's through your head is Batman, Beetlejuice, like, mm. I don't know. And then I kind of turn for a second, then turn back, and he says, hey, Adnan. Oh, um, wow. That is Cody, awesome. Almost fell over, I mean, right? <laughs> Michael Keaton knows who I am. I'm I like, mean, we, want to, we can work blue here. I, I know what happened there. I'm a little, <laughs> little too excited there. I mean, that's. <laughs> I blew myself. There's got to be a better way to say that with a nod to Arrested Development. But yeah, so then we start talking, and clearly, as a sports fan, and I remember like a big Pittsburgh guy. So I. I was, I was like 90% sure. I go, like, I'll go Pirates. And he's like, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. He's like, oh. I go, PNC's, he goes, the best. He goes, the best ballpark, great fans. And the team just blows. I'm like, yeah, it's unfortunate oh. the Pirates do suck. Um, and then we start talking a little bit of, little bit of Penguins. Like, again, Pittsburgh guys, Steelers, obviously. But Pirates is like his first love. And then I say, you know, I love the film Game 6, which is a baseball movie he did. Not sure if you've seen it. He plays a playwright from Boston who has a play opening in Broadway the same night of very famously Game 6, 1986. By the way, if you missed previous episodes of Cinephile, take a listen to Nick Davis, his documentary once 
Once Upon a Time in Queens, coming out September 14th and 15th about Game 6 and, of mm-hmm. course, the Mets. So Keaton goes, yeah, you know what? Dude, that's interesting you mentioned that because I'm not surprised you're a sportscaster, you love baseball. He said, I did that movie for, like, nothing. Like, it might have cost me money to make it, so I'm glad you actually <laughs> saw it. And I said, yeah, no, dude, it was great. Him, Robert Downey Jr. is in the movie, so check out Game 6 if you've never seen it. And then he was really nice. I forget what his date's name was, but it was like an androgynous name. It was like Pat. Like it was a name that you could use yeah. for a man. So he was like, this is, I really need to is... know what his date's name was. I need you to like stay here. Okay, I'm going to have to fight on this. It's, it's like a Pat, a Chris. <laughs> you know, it's, it's one, of, one of those types of names. Oh. Uh, you know what? If you watch the movie The Dream Team, I think it might be one of the characters. Anyways. <laughs> but the more importantly, when I said this is my wife, Eamon, he goes, Eamon, nice to meet you. Oh. We talked for another minute more. And of course, she can't help. But she just goes, oh my God, I love Beetlejuice. And he kind of gave like a slight eye roll. Like, you know, I've heard that every day of my life. But he's like, oh, yeah. yeah, cool. And at the end, I remember he was like, God, man, great chatting. He's like, Eamon, good to meet you. I'm like, wow. Got my he name, got my wife's name. name. Wow. I'm like, dude, this guy's awesome. And afterwards, everyone kept telling me, like, why didn't you get his number? I go, are you kidding? We had a wonderful two to three minute conversation. I would have ruined it, Chris, oh, by saying, I don't oh, know. Can I get your PR? Can I get your PR information? I'd love to have you in my little podcast on ESPN. <sighs> no, I wouldn't even have done it through the podcast. I would have just been like, let's be friends. Can I get your number? <laughs> like, we should go to dinner. I feel like, have you felt this? I felt it. Like, we should just go to dinner. And then at the dinner, at the end of the dinner, that's when you make the podcast play. Come on. Yeah, that put him in the. I mean, he recognized you. That that must have made your week, bro. Uh, top five highlight of my life. I almost as good as when the guy thought I was Chris Chelios at the airport, which is a story for another time. Anyways. That is just to say that I love Michael Keaton. You know, he's been an amazing actor. It's interesting because if I say to you Michael Keaton, I think what pops up is, as I said, Batman, oh, yeah. Beetlejuice. But then he had a great resurgence. Uh, Spotlight won Best Picture. He was the star of the film. Multiplicity is great. <laughs> really funny comedy. Uh, <laughs> Birdman, in which he got nominated, I believe, for the first time and only time for an Academy Award. Thought he might win, lost. But the film did win Best Picture. So Keaton's on a bit of a run here. He was also in a film called The Founder, which Mark Simon liked more than I did, playing Ray Kroc, McDonald's guy. Anyways, the point is, this. I love Michael Keaton. Any film he's in is good, and he's excellent in this film. The reason why I really like Michael Keaton is I think he's the kind of actor that can betray all emotions. Meaning, if you see certain actors, it's almost hard to picture Tom Hanks as a bad guy, right? He's just he's such a naturally good person, yeah. and that's why he plays so many of those roles. But Michael Keaton, I feel like, man, he's a good guy, but he can be a little bit duplicitous. He can be a little bit sneaky. That's a good right? point. His Batman can, has a bit of an edge to he him. He can be a little funny. He can be, yeah, he can be, that's so, like, there's not a lot of actors you could say, I could see him being the lead as the hero, I could see him being a lead as the villain, and Keaton, that's a, what a good shout by you, you're good at this movie uh, thing. I appreciate you, but perceptive, <laughs> I mean, and early in his career, right, he was known for comedies, and then he kind of zigged when everyone thought he would zag, he started making more dramatic films, clean and sober, and it was like, no, I, I can do other things here, and you're right, I mean, he's under, the protege just came out, I think it got mixed reviews, he plays a villain in that movie, that's an action movie, he's got a series coming out on Hulu, which is about the uh, uh, crisis right now, opioid crisis. And now he plays this lawyer. And the thing is, when you see, again, if you see Tom Hanks in this role, I go, oh, he's a good guy, crusading lawyer. When I see Michael Keaton, I go, hmm, not sure. Might be a good guy, might be a bad guy. Morally ambiguous. Which with a lawyer is kind of right on the money. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Um, So the film is really not as much as you think in terms of, like I thought going in, okay, this is an us versus them movie, right? Underdog, he's fighting for the victims of 9-11 to receive the compensation they deserve. Uh, The big bad guys are probably bureaucracy, politics, maybe they'll make Bush look bad. So wait, he's the guy who was in charge of like deciding how much all the victims got? That is like, that is worth a movie just in terms of interest, like that job. Nailed it. And that's why it's called worth because how do you determine the worth? of everyone's life. 3,000 victims. I'm going to tell you, Chris Cody, hey, I know it was your spouse that died. We've done the calculations. She's worth this much money. Like, yeah. Right? What a, what a jaw-dropping assignment. Yes. And he willingly wants to do it. He's like, no, I'm, this is what my job is. Like, I can do it. And they have one scene where he's addressing 
some of the victims of families. And I'm like, talk about an impossible spot. You're trying to address these people. Hey, I'm so sorry for your loss. By the way, here's the check that we're going to yeah. cut on behalf of the federal government. A lot government. less than you might expect it or something, like, right? Because a lot right, of times right. I'm sure they're disappointed with it. Yeah. And so it's interesting. The story really becomes his journey in terms of how do you go from just doing your job, this is what you're assigned to do, to actually having real human emotions and recognizing that, you know, everybody can't just be a number and that we have to hear everyone's story and then try to be a little bit more diplomatic and careful with how we do this. So in some ways, that's a strength of the film. In some ways, that's a drawback of the film because you watch it and go, I'm watching a film about one guy changing, but really it should be about the 3,000 people that died. And that's where the movie is actually at its strongest. In the scenes where Keaton and the other lawyers are asking the people about their recollections, that felt very authentic. It felt like it must have based on true testimony. For example, there's one character who's talking about the fact, you know, he's in love with another guy. But his uh, you know, partner who passed, his parents are from Virginia and did not you know, believe in gay marriage, was, yeah. you know, condone the relationship. And so he's like, you know, I'm, I'm not officially married. Even though in New York I could, in Virginia I could not. This is 01. You know, I'm not going to get any settlement. And like, it's, it's not even the money. It's more offensive to me that this guy's the love of my life. He called me as yeah. everything was falling apart, and I couldn't even speak to him about it. Yeah, um, that's... The real crux of the story, and this is a bit of a spoiler alert, so go ahead and flip it, Dallin Cuff, if you want to listen to something else, because <laughs> this is probably interesting. There's a widow in the film, and you think you know her story. She goes to see Keaton, and she's like, all right, you know, I've got my couple daughters here. I want you to tell you about my husband. He's a wonderful guy, et cetera. And then Keaton gets a call from someone who's like, hey, um, that guy, he's not only responsible for the two kids, he also had a secret marriage, and he had two kids with his mistress. Keaton's like, uh, what? No. And he's like, yeah, so I got documents. I've got proof of this. You know, <laughs> So imagine that now, Cody. Oof. Imagine Keaton's got to go to the widow and say, hey, not only is this the man we're giving. This? Do you have to split this with her? Like, oh, my God. That is just. Right. There's actually two kids that you're not aware of that your oh. husband actually fathered with his mistress that you may not have been aware oh, of. So I actually found that was where the story was very fascinating. Because, again, you're trying to calculate human yeah. life. I mentioned the great Stanley Tucci. You're wondering, hey, what's Tucci's character? He shows up in that scene where Keaton is being browbeaten by everybody. It's so well done. Tucci is the guy who actually quells the uprising and says, hey, listen, this man has been given a job here to tell us what's happening. I'd like to hear him out. At the end, Tucci, at the meeting, Tucci's handing out pamphlets and such. Keaton walks over and goes, hey, man, thanks again for sticking up for me. Though. Yeah. I appreciate that. He's like, oh, he introduces himself. He goes, you'll find that I'm one of your harshest critics. <laughs> Keaton's like, really? He's like, yes, I'm handing out pamphlets actually as to why this is a complete farce. And I encourage you to come to our meeting next week. And Keaton's like, ah, oh, okay, my God. good to meet you. <laughs> so Tucci's really interesting because his character is a widower. And he obviously has a different perspective. And his whole thing, again, is what is the cost of human life? How are you determining what people are worth? At least hear us out, hear our grief, hear our suffering. So I liked Worth. I'm giving it three minute beliefs. As I said, I think when it focuses a little too much on Keaton's journey, I'm not as interested. When it focuses on the victims, I thought it was powerful. See it for Keaton, see it for Tucci, and see it for the storyline. I thought it was an excellent film. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Now we'll go into the old. So we got the new, we got the old. How about the old? Out of Africa. Now, this is a tough sell, okay? I know our audience is thinking, hang on a second, it's a Friday night. You think I'm going to dial up a two-hour, 41-minute movie about this huge melodrama involving Robert Redford and Meryl Streep? Well, that's what I tried to do. In 20th century colonial Kenya, a Danish baroness plantation owner has a passionate love affair with a free-spirited big-game hunter, directed by Sidney Pollack, who won for not only directing but also producing. Cody, I'm telling you right now, I know you're making a real effort to try to watch some of these films. I'll tell you right now. Don't watch this one, okay? Thank God. This one, best picture, and I'm watching it appalled. Uh, Like, I understand it's of a different time and place. I understand I didn't see all the other films that came out in 1985. I'll tell you what the film does well. Cinematography is stunning. Beautiful score. I love the music. John Barry, I believe, did the score. Awesome. I mean, it's actually on AFI, American Film Institute, best scores of all time. I believe out of Africa, it might be top 10, top 15. It is stirring. And again, the cinematography, there's one sequence in which Redford and Streep are flying, and I not only watch it, I watch it three more times. I go, wow, that is, that is just gorgeously shot, and I could see why Pollock receives such a claim. But the fact it won Best Picture, I mean, this is about as slow-moving as possible. It's very <laughs> ponderous. I mean, I appreciate a big-screen epic. I reviewed Lawrence of Arabia last year and raved about it. I talked about Dr. Zhivago earlier this year and did not rave about that. I'm telling you right now, Out of Africa is absolute work, and it is lumbering. Lou Luminek of the Bergen Record here in New Jersey, Bergen County is where I live, so hometown paper. Considering the wealth of writings by Isaac Dissonen and others that its makers had drawn, this lumbering $30 million prestige picture is astonishingly glossy, distressingly conventional, and grossly overlong. When you go to... Yeah, yeah, I'm with him. Lou, you nailed it. When you go to Rotten Tomatoes, you know, normally these films, especially a Best Picture winner, you think is 80% and above. Out of Africa, a quick check shows me 62%. So even critics at the time were like, this movie isn't very good. And yet somehow it won Best Picture. Uh, it's one that I would avoid, despite the fact it does have great movie stars. Meryl Streep, who I've defended, Stugatz has crushed. <laughs> Point to Stu on this one. Meryl Streep's accent is terrible in this movie. I was like, wow, this is really just a stretch to see her as a Danish woman. And Redford, who is an incredible actor, he just turned 85. It's kind of tough to picture him as a big game hunter. Gene Siskel said, I just picture him in like this khaki outfit. I'm like, you're Robert Redford. You're from The Natural. You're like an all-American Californian. You're not some guy hanging out in Africa, hunting rhinos and checking out horses. Like, no. Like, you can have movie stars, but it's tough to believe them in those roles, even as handsome and as captivating as they are. Quick story behind the scenes. Meryl Streep was told by someone that Sidney Pollack, the director, wasn't going to cast her because he didn't find her sexy enough. So she showed up to the audition. Meryl Streep, 1985, push-up bra and low-cut dress. Working blue out of Africa. (laughs) 
So I mentioned great August comedies on the recent episode of Cinephile last week, as a matter of fact. Chris and I just lamenting the fact you used to have such great comedies in the summer. We haven't had that this year. So we mentioned a couple, and then we were talking about quotable comedies. My brother mentioned The Naked Gun. I mean, fantastic in terms of quotable comedies. Um, but we talked about Superbad. We talked about There's Something About Mary. And then a friend of mine mentioned The 40-Year-Old Virgin. Goaded by his buddies, a nerdy guy who's never done the deed, only finds the pressure mounting when he meets a single mother. This is from Judd Apatow at the time. was just a guy named Judd Apatow. He had worked on the Larry Sanders show, close friends with Gary Shandling. He makes his directorial debut. He co-writes with Steve Carell, also an unknown actor, and it's a huge hit. It was such a hit. The New York Times said their best films of this millennium. So 21 years. I think the list that came out two years ago. They put the four-year-old version in the top 25. Wow. Like, this isn't just some comedy. It's actually a really great film. Richard Probst said Carell co-wrote the script with director Judd Apatow. You can feel the respect and affection for the characters. I think that's the key. It's not just a bunch of really talented actors who are funny trading one-liners. It's a genuine story. Mm -hmm. It's about a guy who's a nerdy, sweet guy who's got Dungeons and Dragons characters. He's not sure what to do and he's relatively nervous, and you've surrounded him with a wonderful cast. Carell's obviously perfectly cast, but you've got Seth Rogen, oh. you got Paul Rudd, Jane Lynch. I mean, that is, we talked about Superbad and that great cast. Mm -hmm. How about the cast of the four-year-old virgin? Yeah. It's the, I mean, this is, we're two weeks in a row here. This is one of my favorite movies of all time. I'm going to come up with my top 10. I feel like I need to. Just, I'm, yeah. I'm a producer of a movie podcast now. I, <laughs> you can't produce a movie podcast without a top 10. Um, but you mentioned it. Seth Rogen, he, I think this was his breakout role. Like, this is what got him, yes. like, like leading roles and stuff. I mean, so many memorable lines. I did watch, I actually watched this a little. I got home from my trip. I was like, we're talking about this. Let me actually throw this on. Yeah. You know, it needs to be said in 2021, there are some jokes in this movie that might not work in like, you know, yeah, yeah. objectifying women, homophobic jokes, a couple, couple of gay jokes. from Like, the, like they, they go on a whole riff, Paul Rudd and Seth Rogen of gay jokes. That was I read that was actually only supposed to be one line and they just riffed and it turned into a whole sequence. But stuff like that is a little right. uh, uneasy. And is this the you know, you know, how I know you're gay. You like, Coldplay, yeah, you know how, that, yeah, yeah, like they just go yeah. back and forth, like with right. 20 lines of, you know, how I know you're gay. And then right. it's just so it's, you know, taking advantage of drunk women. There's some stuff here, but I loved it, dude. It's one of my favorite movies ever. <laughs> Seth Rogen, like you mentioned it, Paul Rudd. So funny, like as these these yeah. ancillary characters, like you actually like them as opposed to just like these are idiot friends that are trying to get their friend laid. We're looking at one liners. Hope you have a big back seat because I'm going to put my bike in yeah, it. Like, yeah. what, 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 like, that's an unbelievable. The, the scene where he's getting waxed, which sees Steve Carell actually got waxed. Kelly Clarkson. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa, Kelly Clarkson. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, how about when Jay Lynch starts singing? Oh, my God. That hurts. She's, that she's is... talking about being seduced and she starts singing. I mean, that scene is incredible. <laughs> Paul Rudd, I always say to my wife, love is a mysterious fig. That's just a random Paul Rudd line from that movie, but it just stuck with me. It's just I always bring it into it. And the ending credit scene is epic. <laughs> The Age of yes. Aquarius, Let the Sunshine In. I mean, that is just an epic way. Because you think to yourself, he, you know at the end of this, he's going to get laid. So it's like, yes. how are they going to crescendo this movie so it actually lives up? And it's just, they break into a big a musical, and it's great. I, I like that, too. I love the climax, the use of, no pun intended, <laughs> the, the use of um, Asia in the heat of the moment. Yes. Where he gets on the bike. and like it, It's actually a very winning, charming ending. It feels like an ending you'd see in an 80s movie. Right. It's an 80s song. Yes. It's like a good montage. And I was like, I thought it was nostalgic and also smart and genuinely endearing. Mm -hmm. Catherine Keener, great indie actress. She, of course, plays her love interest. Elizabeth Banks. Romani Malco, who kind of disappointed, disappeared from movies, but he's hilarious. Where is movie. that guy? I was just I know, I was thinking great. that an hour ago. I'm watching this movie. I'm like, this guy's hilarious. Yeah, he's great. I don't know what happened. Just kind of disappeared. How about the scene where uh, Corral's going to put on all those condoms and then the, the daughter's boyfriend walks in and just sees like a heap of 20 condoms and goes, dude, teach me. Dude, teach me. <laughs> 
I'm, I'm literally all the scene with Kevin Hart. There's some good cameos in that movie, oh, yeah? too. Jonah Hill in the eBay shop. I mean, there's just so That's many right. classic cameos. God, we can't get any great comedies in 2021. Go back and watch yeah. the 40-year-old version, a film that was made for, I think, $20 million, made $177 million, released date August 11, 2005, 16th anniversary of arguably Judd Apatow's best film, his first film, arguably his best film. Senior, my senior year of high school. Oh, take, the take me back, Adnan. <laughs> Adnan, I found a news story this week that made me as happy as any news story in entertainment news recently. Uh, it's something I think all celebrities should do at one point in their lives. Antonio Banderas has dyed his hair red. He's a redhead now. And uh, it's just something like if you said to me, what would Antonio Banderas look like as a redhead? I probably would have said not great, but I'm looking at this picture and he looks fantastic. Now, like, and now I want to throw this to you. What random other celebrity would you like to see become a redhead? Well, first of all, I'll just say, you know, some people are actually scared of redheads. I believe there's an actual phobia if you Whoa. look it up. But I, I have no phobia of redheads. Lauren Gardner, my uh, office mate, is a great MLB Network redhead. You know, pro redhead, <laughs> gingies as they call them. But you're right, Banderas, and I encourage everyone to, while you're listening to this podcast, if you're not driving, go Google, look it up. Actually looks surprisingly convincing as a redhead. Like some of these guys when they have these rapid makeovers, you go, it's not going to work, right? John Travolta shaved his head and he was like, well, you know, I just want a different look. No, dude, dude, you're wearing a hairpiece for years. Everyone knows that. Now you shave your head of your beard. Like it's fine. You mean you work with it. Steven Seagal, ponytail, brutal. Banderas is a redhead? This is something I can get behind. If you're famous out there, even if you're not famous and you don't have red hair, don't disregard it. Give it a whirl because Antonio Banderas pulls it off. Gingerphobia, a fear of redheads. I have to live with that. I have to live with South Park saying I don't have a soul. I mean, I mean, we, it's hard to be a redhead out here. That's why we need more celebrities dyeing their hair red. Gingerism, prejudice against or maltreatment of people with red hair. Enough, all right? Five That's health enough. risks of being a redhead. Often have fair skin, a trait known to increase skin cancer risk. I love how you gave your redhead bona fides. You're like a producer, MLB Network, my podcast producer. I'm very pro-redhead. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're taking all the downloads we can, okay? We, I'm not in the position of, of, of dismissing anybody. I am as tolerant of redheads as you can get. Are gingers attractive? How about that? How is there a search engine under are gingers attractive? This, At this I'm time, a, there isn't any evidence to suggest that gingers are less likely to have those traits that are considered generically attractive, such as high cheekbones, symmetrical faces, and well-proportioned bodies. However, they are much more prone to having freckled skin. Mm, mm. I mean, I'm guilty of that. I mean, my head is symmetrical, but it's just gigantic. So, like, I have the symmetrical thing going, but it's a gigantic head. No, no. Big head, big brain, and a well-proportioned body. Hmm. Big brain? Hmm. Debatable. <laughs> a pleasure to bring in a good friend, a guy who's taught me a ton about doing radio, a ton about life, in fact. That's why he's a segment called Life Advice. The Ryan Rosillo podcast you can hear on the Ringer uh, podcast network. Of course, you can hear with Bill Simmons quite a bit. He's been on the rewatchables. He's talked with the program, Spotlight. I mean, that's a wide array of films that Ryan can cover, and it's a pleasure to bring him down to Cinefile. He's made a cameo appearance before. We were waiting for a guest once, and he just jumped in and started telling me how much he loved Manchester by the Sea, which we can revisit because he and I both love that film. But this is a chance for him to truly take center stage. He's a very busy guy. He's back from Basel. Rosillo, what is up? Thanks for making the time, man. That's right. I, I wondered if you'd ask me if I would go search out the birthplace of Federer, but I mean, he was just born in a hospital, so I don't, I don't know if that's a great picture op. And, you know, I don't think you want to walk around Switzerland going, okay, but where exactly was Federer born? So 
You and I, though, both I Federer guys. Everyone knows it about me, but Ryan, when you work out, you get the Federer hat, which I'm reading The Master. You're an avid, voracious reader. Christopher Cleary, author of the New York Times, has just wrote this book called The Master. I'm about two-thirds of the way through. And it was so coincidental you're in Basel, because he said if you go to Basel, there's literally no landmarks to Federer. Like, they're, they're so Swiss, they don't deify their heroes. There's one court named after him. You don't know, to your point, you don't know the hospital, don't know where he was born. Relative anonymity, the greatest tennis player of all time. It's amazing. Well, he's not dead yet, so that's probably part of it. Uh, <laughs> but on the flip side, uh, there's like fountains from the 1500s. Yeah. Seriously. And that's that's where people got their water source, and there's still a lot of active fountains. I, I didn't see a ton of people drinking out of them. Um, and then there was a thing where there was like a bunch of kids swimming in one. And I thought, like, what a, what an amazing picture of these Swiss kids in the middle of the day, middle of a hot day in Switzerland, taking a bath in a fountain. I went, you know what? You're by yourself. <laughs> Don't don't take this picture because the parents gonna see you and they're just gonna be like, what's what's this guy's deal? So I mean, whenever I'm traveling internationally and, and more often than not, it's solo. Um, it's it's always sort of an odd combination of people trying to figure out what my deal is. Is this guy with the military? You know, why is why is he why is he in why Greece? Is he so jacked? So, why is he yeah, like what's like, so there's a lot of questions that get asked. Yeah. As I mentioned off the top, for those who are not aware, and Chris Cody was not aware, you are a writer. Part of the reason that you left ESPN was to challenge yourself to go in a different avenue to explore screenwriting. And as we've talked about, it's like, listen, I've had some success, made some inroads. Unfortunately, pandemic kind of hurt it as well. But podcast crushing it, that's going very well. So what can you tell us as far as the writing and, and where you're at right now? I don't think I ever would have thought I'd say this, but the writing has turned out to be the easiest part. <laughs> And I didn't know if I really wanted to be a writer when you have to do it. And I think a lot of people look at some of these careers and be like, oh, that'd be fun to do. Or, oh, I'd love to do that. And it's something I started doing in 2002. And then I got a job in Boston at the end of 02 into the beginning of 03. And I was doing basically daily radio for, you know, quite a while, you know, sporadically over the next 15 years, uh, mostly of the next 15 years. And so it just never it just never happened. I mean, I was broke all the time. So it wasn't like I was going to say, Hey, as I'm making some developments in sports radio, let me quit this and, and become poor all over again. Although I was pretty poor for probably the first, I don't know, five or six years I was doing this. And it was something that I always, always wanted to do. Um, or at least I thought I could do. And you know, you buy all the books, the, the, the real difference between wanting to do something and thinking you want to do something is when you actually read these books that you buy. Right. So you buy the Robert McKee story, you look at the Sid field stuff, you start printing out other scripts and you're like, you know what? I haven't opened that book in two years. <laughs> and so maybe you're just kidding yourself. Maybe you just think it'd be cool to be a screenwriter, but you don't really want to put the time in. Right. Um, towards the end of the run at ESPN, as far as the, the Daily Chalk show, I, I was working on it in a way where I was like, let me see if I can actually do this. And you finish a script. It was horrible. No one will ever see it, thank God. Um, but there was some sense of accomplishment getting 30-something pages down through the program. And then through that, having people, the first couple of scripts say, you're really bad at this. You know, I'm competitive. And I was like, okay, am I actually am I incapable of doing this? And from that point on and moving out here and really just sort of dedicating every spare moment I had to it, I realized I really liked the process. I like creating worlds. I like trying to solve puzzles in a way. And as much as it's, it's kind of, you know, a pacing yourself, Hey, let me get a scene down. Let me get a couple lines of dialogue down here. Like you don't just don't bang out a 60 page script in a weekend, unless you're amazing. Um, when you're at the end of it, where you have put the puzzle together, I love that feeling because then it's like lock yourself in your house. You don't do anything, maybe a week straight, and then it's done. So I guess the great part is that I know I can do it. The feedback on some of the more recent scripts has been terrific. 
but it's um, it's a different industry from, I would say, the movies that I grew up loving. And I've even had a couple of people write back to me like, hey, this movie would have sold in two seconds in 2005. <laughs> but that's, that's not where we're at right now. So I don't want to make excuses for it. It will happen. Uh, not everything happens on your schedule. I know that, you know, I was able to sell one thing, which felt kind of cool. Um, but, you know, it's a really hard thing to get into. And even with the success that I've had, it doesn't guarantee you anything with this. But I, I like the actual creative process of it. I know I can do it. So that feels like a pretty significant hurdle to pass. It's just a matter of, of putting something together that somebody wants to not only buy, but make. I mean, that's what you realize. Hey, I finished a script. Okay, cool. Hey, somebody wants to buy this. Oh my God. Oh, now I'm partnered with this person. This is incredible. Like I've actually been partnered with some pretty big names and some stuff. And then, you know, you get right to the point and everybody kind of jokes like, man, once you're in Hollywood, you can't believe anything ever gets made. So, you know, look, sports is the same way. A lot of adversity, a lot of people telling you, you can't do anything. Hey, the odds are against you. Never it's going to work. So I think that's at least prepped me for this next part of the career, which, you know, will happen. Yeah. You sent me the feature film script that you had written. And I was like, this is excellent. And you're like, yeah, dude, I, I worked really hard on this. And I don't give any details away, but it's based on a story that you knew, something that your buddy had gone through. And I was amazed how authentic it was. And it made sense that you would, you would enjoy the writing process and be good at it. Because as you said, you're meticulous and hardworking. So naturally, your path will be to obsess over every bit of dialogue, every scene, every way to break it down. The downside, as you said, is because you're so meticulous and hardworking, you may get to the point where you're just constantly rejiggling the pieces and you're not sure which direction you're supposed to go. Or, and I don't know if you've found this yet, you feel really passionate about the script a certain way and someone gives you notes which you disagree with. And you say, well, hang on a second. I know I'm a relative neophyte. I'll take your advice, but actually I disagree with you. My story's about this and I can't change it from A, B to C. Has that happened? Yeah. I mean, the script that you're talking about, and I'll be vague about it um, because it's a true story. And I researched it for like a year and did interviews and, it, you know, I actually enjoyed it. Like, I think there's a lot of us that'll go, do I like, wait, I'm on a plane and I'm flying to some part of the country to sit down with these people to interview them about this thing that happened. And then I'm going to turn it into something like, are you really going to do this? Or did you just bring some legal pads? You know, like, are you really going to do this? Um, I just thought the story was so fascinating, but you know, basically, uh, uh, this, this couple meets through really strange circumstances. And then through that, um, the wife kidnaps the child and then um, brings it to a foreign country. And then the father has to go back and, and get the kid. Uh, and it's an incredible story. But I wrote it the way I saw the story. And you're right, like to say, who, who am I to say, no, this is the way it has to be done. But like I had a pretty high level producer read it and go, this is an amazing story. And I think the most important thing too, if you're creative, like kind of the rules, like you can come up with something and somebody be like, well, where's the IP? Yeah. You know, what's this based on? Right. It's like, well, no, I wrote this. It's like, no, it needs to be based on a, a book from the 1800s. You're like a book no one's ever heard of in 200 <laughs> years. It needs to be based on that. So that can be challenging at times when you're just creating, because I was creating things out of thin air and some of the first dramas that I, that I was writing for television. So I was like, all right, well, let me try this. I'll, I'll, there's this true story that I know about. I'll research the hell out of it. I'll write it a certain way. And what I did with it was I told the truth and I had somebody go, hey, great job, really interesting, you know, definitely an indie type film, but you've got to reverse the hero and villain role to this. And I went, well, I'm not doing that because that's, that's just not what happened. And they were like, OK, good luck. <laughs> right. It's not a documentary. They were trying to make a movie. I don't care what happened. We're trying to sell the right, thing, right? right? In that script writing process, what's the most satisfying feeling? Is it like writing a joke that you think just nails? What is this the best feeling you get when you're writing? I can't use the names, but I would say, you know, it's a very 
revealing thing to show somebody you're writing. All right. And I've had a friend, you know, who, who was the first guy, like I actually have a few friends that have been successful writers for two plus decades. And the first guy is a comedy writer. He's an incredible guy, you know, awesome background, just a stud all the way around. I met him when I was a teenager. Right. And, you know, he goes out to LA, he starts reading scripts. He's like, Hey, I can do this. And he starts writing scripts. And so I was, you know, bugging him about it. Cause he knew I was interested, but I wasn't doing anything. And I said, can I, can I send you some stuff? And he goes, no, you can't. He goes, cause it's going to suck. And I'm going to have to tell you it sucks and it's going to change our relationship. Now, the thing is maybe then it would have bummed me out enough, but after you do stuff in the public spotlight for this long, I'm told I'm a dick every <laughs> single day of my life. So I think I've built up a bit of a callus to all of it. Um, so I've had a couple people that have done really big stuff recently. And, you know, there's a script that I finished a couple months ago and you send it off and you think it's pretty good to have somebody who you really respect that has stuff on TV or HBO and go, Hey, if I didn't know you, I would go, this is a show and somebody, you know, somebody should make this at some point. Um, that's happened a couple of times this year. And it's just a great feeling. It motivates you to keep going. It's like the first time Tariko called me in a commercial break when I was filling in, I wasn't even with Van Pelt yet. And I get to commercial, the producer's like, Hey, Tariko just called the hotline for your cell phone number. And I'm like, Oh shit, what did I say? And Tariko said, hey, I've been listening to you now on the weekends for a year or so. He goes, keep doing exactly what you're doing. You are going to be great at this. And it changed the way I felt about myself. And so I've recently had that experience on the writing front. It's a cool feeling. That's awesome. What about when Dave Roberts called you? Was it a similar message he was conveying? <laughs> hey, look, I, you want to talk honest? I like Dave Roberts. He's uh, one of our former bosses at ESPN and is in charge of a lot of stuff. Dave and I had a few disagreements and he would let you know how you felt about something. But the very, but the very, like the reason I love Dave is I could be like, okay. And a couple of times I'd agree with him. A couple of times I disagree with him, but I knew we were cool. I knew we could talk to each other the way we needed to talk to each other to get the message across where I would say there's other times, and this is not specific to ESPN that I used to kind of joke about like, Hey, is the goal here to give me bad news later? So I'm more pissed off because like, you could just tell me what's not going to work out instead of bullshitting me for six months. But I think it's like, Hey, can we make Ryan even more mad if we wait be like, yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Let's do it that way. So, uh, I, Dave Roberts was, was right in your face and honest about stuff, but I'd rather have that than somebody that's not going to tell me the truth. hundred percent. I remember there was one time where Skip Bayless got all worked up about some bullshit again. And he thought that I had said something about him during the radio show. And I hadn't even said anything about him either time. I say stuff about him now because I don't like him. But um, PR got involved and like the hotlines are flying off. And then I'm in a commercial break and somebody comes running in and be like, what did you just say about Skip Bayless? I'm like, whoa, what, what are you talking about? And I'm like racking him brain, like, I don't know. I just did two hours of radio. I haven't even mentioned him once. Like what? What? And it's like PR just called. They're freaking out. And it was obviously because he got mad about something that wasn't even accurate and then like told on me. And then I had to be yelled at. And I'm just like, wait, what? Like, what are you talking? I'm like, hey, I got an hour. I got an hour. We can talk about it at four. I love the passion. Let's dive into one of our favorite movies, Fargo, 25th anniversary. I almost think it's kind of like with sports trivia. Like, it's easy to get the easy questions. But when you can go deep on a movie, that's when you know you're really passionate about it. And what I'm referring to is, I once said to you how much I love Fargo. And you said I love it too. And you followed up by saying, 
we've never done this before. And I already started cracking up because then you said, I can get you $100 <laughs> knocked off, off that true code, which you've got to be a really big Fargo fan to get that reference right away. And then in a commercial break, you said to me once again, honestly, dude, Godfather 2 is my, my favorite serious movie, like drama. He goes, but Fargo is as good as it gets for a comedy. Let's start there. Why is Fargo a movie that you love as much as I do? Yeah, it's, it's probably my favorite. You know, you feel like you always have to kind of say Godfather 2. And there's, there's other movies in the conversation. You know, you know how much, like Bottle Rocket was yes. my favorite Wes Anderson movie, but I think Rushmore is the perfect movie. You know, I don't need to go over the list. I was actually thinking about this in preparation for today, but that's going to get us distracted. I love most of what the Coen brothers do, but for this movie, and I watched it again last night, and this is actually a good transition into what we were talking about a little bit earlier, is you start to understand some of the rules of writing. Because there was some stuff I was doing, I was like, hey, this is stupid. You're page 60 here. Like, this has to be page 30, dude. And I'm like, well, and they're like, no, no, this needs to be page. <laughs> it's a <laughs> three-act like, okay. structure for a reason. Okay. <laughs> right. Like, okay, fair, fair. You are five minutes into the movie, and you got Buscemi asking William H. Macy, like, wait, we're kidnapping your wife and you're paying the ransom? I mean, do you know how beautiful a start of a script that is? That there's no fucking around whatsoever. And it's actually those first minutes are beautiful. First of all, it's based on a true story, which was never true. Okay. I didn't know that for years. Uh, you know, there's some. Wait, wait with that's everything. confusing. Is it a true story or not? I'm... <laughs> it is. There are two true crime things that happen kind of in the area I don't know the timeline prior to when the movie was released, but by the time the script was done, it wasn't even close. It wasn't even close to what happened. And there's a Charlie Rose interview where he asks like, Hey, this isn't a true story. And both the Coen brothers have these shitting grins where it's very clear <laughs> they're not. So there's probably going to be some people listening to this for the first time, not realizing that that actually was never a true story. And, and again, I went years without even noticing it. And then you go to kind of that revenant, you know, when you watch The Revenant, you're cold the whole time. Yeah. It's uncomfortable. That new AMC series with Colin Farrell, where he reminds everybody how incredible of an actor he is, but everybody should have been reminded with The Lobster. Nice. Where it is bleak. It is, it is dark. It is inhospitable. It's awful. And anybody that's ever driven through that weather, and I know that I have, you know, northern Vermont, where you're in the desert, but it's cold. And so we start with a true story, Coen Brothers, fuck with the audience thing. It's a Norwegian folk song that that song is adapted from. And then it's white out, which is setting the tone for how bleak this, this backdrop is. And then this car sort of emerges on this long stretch, which is a very similar shot to what they did in blood simple, which is actually an incredible movie that I'd say that even if it weren't the Coen brothers, which is kind of their first thing. And then you're five minutes in and the dialogue is this meek, you know, emasculated man that we learn about <laughs> whom no one respects. Ironically, the only person in the film that respects him is his wife, who he pulls this awful, awful thing with. Like, this is a man who is about to have his wife kidnapped so he can get the ransom for his own project and all of his own financial bullshit. And yet you still find yourself feeling sorry for this person who's about to commit this atrocious act against his family. Yeah, there's so much to digest. It's so well said. The cinematography is amazing because, like you said, it's bleak, but it's haunting. That music is very poetic. I mean, that overhead shot of Macy walking in the snow, like, like you said, if you've ever experienced snow, you being in Vermont, being, being in Canada, you know what it's like to get that ice scraper and just in a frustration, throw the damn scraper because you just realize you're not making any progress. And he's so futile. And then he has to pick it up at right. him. Like, that's where the Coen brothers separate themselves. Right. It's, it's like, now go pick it back up right. and scrape the rest of the windshield. And you're right there with them, if anybody's ever had to do that. Yeah, and, and it's so gutsy because 
McDormand's excellent. Listen, she, it's a very unique character, a pregnant police chief. I think I'm going to barf. She's smarter than them. She's more cunning. But it, it's real guts to put Macy in that movie because you're right. Meek is the word for it. He's so emasculated. He's a loser. He's the kind of guy that got stuffed in the lockers, and now he thinks he's smarter than everybody else, and he's literally, he gets in his <laughs> underwear. Like, he's in his boxer shorts trying to climb out the window. That's his last scene. I'll be right there. One second. Like, it's unreal. And they had the guts to go, no, no this is going to be one of our main characters. He's going to be fantastic. It's with the best work of William H. Macy's career. Yeah, I always hate the note on something where you'll you'll submit something. And this is the rule for television, especially when we grew up. It's like, well, who am I rooting for? It's like, okay, but you're not always rooting for me. Like, should you have been rooting for Tony Soprano? Like, you sort of were because you felt connected. But the guy, Tony Soprano's a piece of <laughs> shit and an idiot. <laughs> I mean, if you really break it down, right? Um, he's not a good dad. He's a horrible husband. Right. You know, I mean, he's, he's incredibly selfish <laughs> through the whole show. Like, if you rewatch Sopranos, you're like, this guy's a dick. But again, he's, you know, I mean, like, so the, we had that anti-hero that became the norm. You know, it happened with The Shield. There's, there's this great book, The Difficult Men. And it, it kind of inspired me on some of the writing stuff, too. And I think with this, you know, we have an instinct to kind of root for the first person that we're introduced to in a story, in television or film. And there's never any moment you should ever be rooting for him. But I don't know that he, William H. Macy is hated the way you should have hated anybody that fit that profile of a character. Yeah. So if you're the Coen brothers and you haven't written anything, you know, they've, they've still had plenty of movies now, you know, to build off of. So they were accepted guys and they're brilliant. I wonder if somebody may have been like, wait, why am I like, what's, you know, Francis McDormand's the hero here, but this guy's so terrible and he's kind of the first guy we meet. And that's why I think it's, you know, that's part of one of the many reasons why it's so good. The fact he's pretending his phone call when he's going to find out that his wife has kidnapped. It's such a great scene that you see his fake emotion. Uh, Cause he's, he's on the other room. Oh geez. Oh geez. And, and, and then you get in and it's just little stuff like that. You know, there's, I mean, we can, we can spend all day on pointing out those little, cause they do, the Coens do an unbelievable job of giving you something that seems insignificant that actually does a much better job of telling the story than just some dramatic shot or this incredible dialogue. Like even when he goes into that dive bar in the very beginning to meet Buscemi and, um, and the Get other guy, yeah. cause he has a weird name. Yeah. 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 You know, it's just guys walking through with Miller cans and some old timey 1980s country music. And it's perfect. It's 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 not in the back of a parking. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's they just their attention to detail and their observational humor without trying to be funny is pretty tough to beat. Yeah. The scene where Shemi and Stamari are driving and Shemi goes, would it kill you to say anything? And he's like, I just did. He's like, nope. I mean, that's, that's a real fountain of conversation. I mean, that's, that's a geyser. I mean, that's, again, that's old school formula, right? One chatty guy, one quiet guy, one angry tall guy, one short, ugly looking guy. But, but when the cones do, it's different. They're banging hookers. They're watching Carson together. I mean, the, the, that relationship, again, that could be a throwaway, a couple of villains, and yet they still mind that for humor and make it unique. When Bashimi walks in, blood dripping, you usually see the other guy. I mean, I mean it's so perfectly written. Yeah, and you know, Buscemi, this is kind of a coming out party for a few different people. I think Francis McDormand, didn't she win she the Academy Award for this yeah. too? Amazing. All right. Okay. Uh, William H. Macy, you know, again, these people have done stuff. I mean, Francis goes back to some of the earlier right. stuff. Blood Simple, Brothers. Right. Blood Simple, which again is a must watch. By the way, that book is Difficult Man. Brett Martin wrote it. I just want to make sure I get his name in there because if you love any of that, you know, The Wire, um, Breaking Bad, Sopranos, The Shield, and kind of giving you the historical, and like, dude, The Wire chapter alone on what. David Simon did fighting HBO to keep that show on television because this was a new genre of stuff. But I still think that there's some 
you know, it's not like, hey, let's base all these TV shows on this Fargo character. But, you know, the, the rules used to be so much stricter on who's the main guy, who are we rooting for? He always has to come through. And, and at every turn, William H. Macy's a piece of shit. Um, but, you know, Buscemi, when he's at the, uh, the hotel with the hooker <laughs> the second time, he's a big hooker guy. And he goes, you get Jose Feliciano. Not so bad. And then she's, you know, she's playing along. <laughs> they're having champagne. But then they're like little things where he's rude because he can't get his champagne filled. And it's like, you know, what are you, a dick? And then he goes to her. He's like, so uh, you enjoy this line of work? You find it interesting? <laughs> she, she, she just, and she's just looking at him like, you know, she was trying to pay, play along with this guy who seems a little socially awkward. And then he's basically like, so, you know, you just you like being a hooker? You mentioned it's like trying to it's so good. No, because you mentioned structure and you think a scene doesn't make sense and afterwards it does. And when the first time I saw it, I did not get the scene why the Asian guy from years ago is hitting up Francis McDormand. And I'm like, it's a funny scene, but I'm like, I don't understand why it's in the movie. I always liked you so much. Like I was hysterical. I I didn't understand why it's in the movie. Especially when he sits next to her. He goes, You mind if I sit here? She goes, No, how about you sit over there? And I said, No, no, just had to wait up to turn my head then. It's not easier, right? And then when I read afterwards, I go, No, the reason they put that in is that makes her distrust William H. Macy. That she goes back the second time because she finds out his story's bullshit. That he says his wife is dying of leukemia. That never happened. Then she goes back to challenge William H. Macy and finds that he's alive. Like to your point, the scene doesn't seem to make sense. And yet it makes perfect sense. That's something, you know, that I've, I've definitely noticed in when you're watching shows, you know, did you watch white Lotus? I haven't. No, I heard it was good. HBO show. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Really good. You know, there's something that very simple that happens and you're like, Oh, what's that for now? You know, I, I would say I watch things differently now too, with everything that I've been trying to do, but I didn't get that scene. I didn't understand it. <laughs> And honestly, I don't think I think they had the director's final approval on this. I don't think that scene would have been in there because I don't think anybody understood it. It seems like the scene where you're like every scene and all these lines and these like there's supposed to be a reason for everything. Right. I know it sounds pretty simplistic and maybe there's shows you're like, well, what the hell is that? And you're like, oh, maybe that, that, that script wasn't as good. But when you really break it down, no, no, there's a, there's a reason this builds to this or, you know, this is setting up something a little bit later. I didn't get that scene at all. You're such a special lady, <laughs> you know, and, and I, I was just like, I bet you, I bet you if they didn't have the final call, a studio would have been like, Hey, we still, oh, oh, you explained it to us. Okay. Nobody's going to get that. Right. And when she's on the phone and she goes and gets Hardee's in the morning and she's there, although she did get dressed up and did her hair and makeup when she went to meet that guy. So I don't know what was going on there, but the point would be that the Midwestern default is to trust everybody and that now she was conned by this guy who never was married, who was harassing this woman, has psychiatric problems, that it resets her in thinking about William H. Macy. I thought it was hard to follow. I still do. I think there could have been something that was more obvious because I was thinking about it this morning. It's great that you brought that up. Is maybe if H. Macy, again, here I'm trying to fix Fargo, so I feel like an <laughs> asshole. But uh, if William H. Macy's on a billboard and he's smiling and he looks like disingenuous in the billboard. She has that moment where she's looking at it because you can see it when you know that that's the connection of why that scene even happens or that storyline when she's eating and she's in her car and she's having these kind of contemplative moments. You can see that she's like, she's pushing that on her face where it's like, Hey, she's really thinking about something and Oh, that, but I'm with you, Adnan. I didn't get it for years. I really didn't. You and I always love a great random supporting character. One of the all time favorites is the guy who gets quizzed by one of the sheriffs 
And it's, I hope this guy's like a New York stockbroker and he's nothing like this guy because I picture him right out of where he's cast. So he says to me, he's looking for some action. I says, what kind of action? He says, woman action. What do I look like? And I says to him, well, what do I look like to you? So he says to me, I'm just going crazy out here in the middle of nowhere. That whole scene, one shot, no cuts, two minutes of a guy rambling. It's brilliant because that's exactly what I picture when I picture a guy, a random guy in Fargo. Yeah, it's probably nothing. And it's, it's, it's an awesome way to kind of, because sometimes you'll write these things out. You'll appreciate this because I loved it. I was reading um, Breakfast of Champions by Vonnegut nice. uh, recently because I loved all the Vonnegut stuff when I was in high school. Couldn't get enough yeah, of it. Read fine. most of it's it. All timer. Yeah. Right. Right. I was a big Cat's Cradle guy um, back when I was younger. And so I was like, let me bang one of these out. And they actually go really easy. And Vonnegut has this incredible line. And I think it's, I hope it's Breakfast of Champions. Yeah, it has to be because he does this weird sort of inside outside character as his right. I mean, it's actually really conceptually a very weird book. They actually made it into a movie too, yes. like a long, long Nick time Nick, ago. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Was it Bruce Willis? Like, Bruce Willis movie? Nick Nolte was in it? Look yeah, it, I can look it up. Look it up. Uh, it didn't do no, well. It didn't. But I mean, I love that somebody tried with that book. But Vonnegut has a line where he just goes, you know, the reason we have so many murders is because it's the best way to end a script. <laughs> <laughs> or it's the best way to end, end stories. Right. Because there's so many people It's like, all right, here's the thing. And you're living in this world for 90 minutes, two hours. We're like, okay, what happens at the end? Oh, we're just going to kill everybody. Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. You know, we've seen that. But again, a lot of stories sort of end that way. But that scene... I love that you love that scene because the guy is so good. <laughs> and he's like, I'm Dico. So the last guy, the last guy that got, you know, he's like, you don't want to end up like, well, no, it doesn't sound like a good deal for him. And he's, and he's sweeping water off of his driveway while he's doing. And he's bartending at some, you know, rotary club. And Buscemi's in there shit face looking for hookers, telling the bartender he killed the last guy that crossed him. And it all works instead of like, hey, how are you going to connect the mystery solving of this deal? And at that point, it all feels kind of secondary because the rest of the, it's so good. Yeah. Like, it's almost like it doesn't have to hold up <laughs> that part of it because you're like, ah, oh, whatever happens, happens. Like, this has been so good for this long. Right. But it's, it's not cheating. It's a really clever way that's totally believable with that awesome. Yeah, you're right. It's just this one shot scene. And, and now you're like, oh, okay, so this is how maybe they're going to bring this to, to a close. And it ends by him saying, looks like it's going to turn cold. These guys are wearing giant parkas <laughs> surrounded yeah, yeah, by yeah, yeah. snow. <laughs> now it's going to turn cold. Right now it's Bobby. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> and they're just looking up. And, it, and actually the way the lighting is with the overcast, it wasn't – they didn't bullshit because it did look, did look like it was about to get worse. What you watching there, Wade? Gophers. Like, <laughs> what do you think of the accent? Because some people go, well, it's overdone. It's not authentic. But to me, I'm like – It's totally overdone. Right, but it's a unique film. Yeah, you betcha, yeah. I heard people hated it from there yeah. uh, when it first came out because people were starting to, like, quote it. I mean, this is a big deal when this came yeah. out because – I don't know that we had enough movies like this back then. And I love this era of movies because, you know, it didn't have to be a superhero movie. It didn't have to be a remake. It didn't have to be, hey, let's just put a star in there for, for two hours and have a bad ending. You know, these movies are really important. And, um, you know, when you read the script, and I don't know if it was what I saw was adapted back from what was actually in the movie. But if you read any of the Cohen stuff, like this is kind of how they write their scripts. There's no improvisation they write these things out this way, which just speaks to like, it's funny because that movie we were talking about the first time I met with one guy, I was like, you should try to write this, but write it like a Coen brother thing. I'm like, oh, just write it like the Coen <laughs> brothers. Yeah, no problem. 
that'll be easy. I mean, I'm banging out on final draft here on my laptop for two years. So I'll just write it like the Cohen <laughs> brothers do. And, uh, you know, I just, I just like shook my head going, I'm, I'm so in awe of those guys. I don't even know that I would attempt to do something like right. that. Uh, they can have it if they want it. But when I think of like some of that small dialogue, even when they go meet the first girls <laughs> up in, uh, she's like white bear lake, go bears. <laughs> and she's like, where are you from? Shasta. <laughs> She's like, I did some college, but I dropped. Yeah, she dropped. Yeah. And you're just like, what the hell is going on? And yet McDormand likes everybody the whole time, right. which is why you end up, you know, she's the hero and she's who you actually are rooting for. Right. And she's smarter than everybody else. And, right. You know, I don't know. I don't know if the Coen brothers did that to like do kind of a, a gender thing. But if this were made in like 2021, that would be kind of like the headline. Yeah, I agree. Like, oh, yeah, great, great. Strong, strong female. Like, did you do it on purpose or did you just do it because that's the best way to tell the story, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't, back then, I don't think, you know, obviously we didn't consciously, I don't think we talked about stuff that way, uh, the way we do now. Gotta have a good breakfast. I'll make you some eggs. Uh, Gene Siskel once said, he's watched like 20,000 movies in his life. He said, Fargo is in my top 10 all time because it's everything. He said, it's a comedy. It's a drama. It's a thriller. It's a film noir. It's a horror film. He goes, it's like its own personal film festival. That's why it's one of the greatest films of all time. I have nothing to add to that. Cause that's, that's perfect. I mean, I love funny without trying to be funny. Yeah. I mean, think about think how hard that is to pull off. Comedy by itself is hard to pull off. Like some guys would be like, oh, are you writing like comedies and stuff and sitcoms? And I was like, no, like, you know, I don't want to write like set up, set up joke, set up, set up joke. And I go to do it really well. It's probably harder than any of the other stuff. And they were like, oh, well, you know, what are you actually doing? I was like, I'm trying to do like serious stuff. I just go, mm. <laughs> good luck, dude. <laughs> you know? And uh, to be funny without trying to be funny, I think is like an entirely new level. And, I, and again, I don't think it's just the accents or any of that stuff. It's, it's these awkward observational moments where they, I just think, I don't know, Adnan. I mean, you tell me, I, I feel like they set it up better than anybody else does without, like it never feels like they're trying to do what they end up accomplishing in those scenes. Right. Yeah. You, you don't watch the scene and go, oh, the purpose of this is this. You just watch it and you go, okay, I'm going along with this. It feels fun. And then afterwards you realize, oh, that's actually a pivotal scene because of this. That further adds credence to this. And you're right. It's like they have all these beats, but you don't see them. Some films, you can see them working. You can see the gears and the chains. Going, okay, I get it. That's going to this. This is the moment I have to feel something for this. No, the far, it feels so observational. Their films, you go, it just kind of unfolds seamlessly. That's what I love about their work. Yeah. I mean, Big Lebowski is one of my favorites too. And you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman in that movie is just, <laughs> I mean, throwing 95 miles an hour every time without really trying. The to, first lady. You know? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like, oh, so who are they? these are, these are Mr. Lebowski's children. Oh, so, you know, he's, he's pretty cool then. No, they're not his actual children. These are his urban achievers. And then when he calls, Jeff Bridges, he's like, dude. <laughs> he calls him dude like I would call you Adnan. And, you know, I, I just, these guys just do something different. They do it really special. And it's just awesome that people are capable of doing this kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, you know what I mean? And there's very few movies where that happens. I, for me, it, it obviously happens a lot less. But I don't know, man. The first time I ever saw that, it was one of those moments where you're like, I didn't even know people made movies like this. And I remember I didn't return the VHS. I kept it when I went back to college. <laughs> Be kind, rewind, blockbuster. No, no thanks. I'm keeping no, this one. <laughs> no. That was, that was back when like people weren't throwing out multiple copies of movies. <laughs> I worked at the store and it got lost. And so it wasn't like straight up, hey, I'm renting this and never returning right. it deal. But uh, 
I was not great. I was not great on the return of that one. So uh, apologies to Island Entertainment. We'll get the late fees in there at some point. Um, this was a ton of fun. 25th anniversary of Fargo. If you've never seen it, hopefully Ryan and I have sold you on it. The Ryan Rosillo podcast available on the Rigger Podcast Network. You can also hear him with Bill Simmons, the BS podcast, and as I mentioned, on the Rewatchables time to time. This was great to catch up, man. I really appreciate it. I know you're saying goodbye, but I have to add this, and I know I know I can go forever here. Please. Did you know about the story about the Japanese woman that went there and committed suicide? Did you hear no, about any of this no. stuff? So uh, there was the story evolved into two different versions of it. The first story was that this woman who was obsessed with the movie Fargo went to this part of the country and didn't speak any English and had a map. And she was at the police station where she got picked up because people were like, who is this woman just walking around? And she wasn't dressed like she was from there. At all. Again, she didn't speak any English. And she kept saying Fargo, Fargo over and over again. And then she was found dead in the woods. Oh. So the first version of the story was that she was so obsessed with the movie. She thought it was real because at the beginning it said, hey, this is a real movie. She thought the money was actually buried somewhere and she had a map trying to find it. All right. So there was a movie made about that. But then it ended up actually not being true. It became this urban legend. And in fact, she was this Japanese woman that went to commit suicide. Oh. So... There's all sorts of stuff about this movie that ends up being kind of crazy after the fact. And I don't know any movie, you know, there's very few things that would have in, uh, yeah, it's not at the appendix, the epilogue of like, no, actually there was this story for years. People thought this woman was so obsessed with Fargo that she went to go find the money. And it actually, even though there was a movie made about, it, which I've never seen, there was a documentary then made about her that tried to prove that that wasn't true, which is I mean, just, it's crazy. Yeah, it's always like the great films. There's always some weird subplots that go with it as well. No Gene, no money. How good is Wade? That's the final thought. How good is Wade? If you picture a father-in-law who's a real pain the ass, no Gene, no money. I would have had him kidnapped, you know? <laughs> That's where he screwed up. Oh, it was great. Thanks, Ryan. All right, thanks once again to Ryan Vasilli. You can follow Ryan on Twitter, on Instagram, and of course, listen to his podcast. You can subscribe, download, review, rate and review, uh, stop loading, and then following all again. All that stuff. Yeah. Just do it all. Just, just, yeah. you know. Unsubscribe, resubscribe, <laughs> do what you got to do. Next week, I cannot wait. I'm looking right now at The Hollywood Reporter, a copy of which has an interview with Paul Schrader. We're going to get Paul Schrader on the podcast. We're talking to the guest bookers. He's at the Venice Film Festival. New film called The Card Counter. It stars Oscar Isaac. I cannot wait. That'll be our featured review next week. The Card Counter and also big time guest. Fingers crossed, Frank Caliendo. How funny is that guy? I texted him like, dude, you want to come on? Impressions aplenty. We'll just go through the ringer uh, because he's one of the all-timers. Until then, I'll see you at the movies.